Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Philippe Cohen-Solal, and you're listening to the seventh episode of Outsider. For this last episode, I wanted to speak with someone whose work has been very important in reshaping the narrative around Henry Darger. Mark Stokes is a London-based filmmaker who released a few years ago a documentary called Revolutions of the Night, in which he reconstituted Henry Darger's life story. The film features many people who have known Henry Darger and share their memories of him. I spoke with Mark about the challenges of telling such a complex story, about filming on location at the Lincoln Asylum, and about how he feels Henry Darger's legacy is being passed on today. I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Hi Mark, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Can you start by introducing yourself and your documentary on Henry Dogger? My name is Mark Stokes, and I'm director of the documentary Revolutions of the Night, The Enigma of Henry Darger. And the film came out in its final version in 2017. Okay, and how did you discover Henry Dogger's art? And how did you decide to make a documentary on him? And did you know what outsider art was at the time? I first really became aware of um, Henry Darger's art when I saw the giant book by um, John McGregor. Um, I had a bit of an awareness of him beforehand from, you know, articles that I'd read. There was one back, you know, quite some time before in Raw magazine. Um, but the first time that it really made an impact on me was in 2003 when I saw the John McGregor book. And... I was immediately struck by the work. I mean, it has a stunning cover, these bizarre hands of fire which are lurking above the Vivian girls. And it's an immediately intriguing image. And I opened the book and, and saw the first few pages. And yeah, I, I, I'll never forget, actually, how great the impact was by looking at those first images. And they were just really very, very intriguing. And I'd say a little bit disorientating because I'd never really seen work like this. I can't say that I immediately loved it because it looks so different from other work. So it took me a day or so to, to think about it. And I didn't buy the book immediately. I went back just a couple of days later and had another look and, and looked at more of the images. And of course, you know, it's a bit of a disturbing world in part. And you, you, you know, you wonder whether you want to get involved in it. But I thought about it for a little while. And then I kind of thought, oh, this is you know, an artist who's not unknown, he's quite well known, but not incredibly well known. And I thought, wow, this would make an amazing film and I'd love to get involved. So that's 
you know how the journey started. But you know, we we know that Dogger has been largely misunderstood for a very long time, mostly because people didn't know so much about his life. But how much did you know yourself or guess about his past before you started making the film? It happened really quite quickly. I mean, I thought, oh, this would make an amazing film. And of course, you you read a little bit about his his life, and you realize that you know, even though the, you know the the paintings and the works. They're stunning in and of themselves. We said we call them paintings, but you know, more accurately, you know, they're described as collage drawings because they're drawings and then illustrations. Um, but then you find out that you know the, all this visual work is part of a larger project, and in fact, uh, you know, the the writings came first, and uh, he created what we now know is possibly the longest work of fiction ever written. And in those early days, I mean, those early days, you know, 2003, when I arrived in Chicago, kindly invited by Kyoko Lerner, that was the start of finding out about, more about him. Yeah, I mean, within two weeks, I was there in Chicago, happily being able to stay at Kyoko Lerner's house, which was next door to where Henry Darger lived. You know, I was able to talk to Kyoko, you know, find out about Henry Darger from her. And then she was able to introduce me to some of the key people who were there in the very, very early days. And that was just fascinating to me because I wanted to go back to day one. What did people think? right at the beginning because that story the real true story of his discovery hadn't really been told before you interviewed david berglund for example henry's neighbor who discovered his art with nathan lerner was it easy to talk to these people were they willing to remember henry and to tell you about him I think, yes, they were happy to talk because even though, you know, Daga had led a completely solitary life, or well, we say completely solitary, it wasn't solitary. He did actually have more contacts than we realized, but he led overall what we describe as a solitary life. Um, in terms of his creation, he didn't show his work or share his work with anybody. Um, he had contacts with people. And it wasn't difficult in a sense because um, David Berglund and others, you know, were still in contact with Kyoko and I. I was able to then you know, be in touch with them. So, for example, somebody like David Berglund uh, was able to visit and actually stayed with him for several days to get to know him. And he was so willing to share his story and to explain and, you know, put across to me how he had, you know, discovered this work, how he began to come to understand it. But equally, what was just as important was he had the idea that Daga had, at that stage, been to a degree misunderstood. And over time, Daga becomes something like a fictitious person. And what David wanted to do was give me a better sense of, you know, what Darga was like as a person. Develop this sense that Henry Darga was kind of locked in time as a, as a, you know, we picture him as this, you know, old, very, very isolated person, but he was described by some people and people thought of him still as feeble-minded. So, uh, you know, that he was really kind of not in control of, of, of what he was doing. And there had evolved this kind of idea that Daga hadn't you know, made creative choices. He hadn't 
almost had a hand in his work, that he was just driven by his pathologies, by what people perceived of as his mental state, that he had no kind of creative agency in what he was making or what he made. Now, David Berglund didn't see it that way. He thought that Henry Dog was facing and uh, making choices all of the time. And he wanted to, you know, really put across the sense of you know, Henry Dog as a person rather than just being this, you know, abstract you know, crazy genius who almost like retreated into this world at night and and came back with works in the morning <laughs> without even having had a hand in creating them. David, on the other hand, he he planted the seed really in my mind that you know this was someone who who worked constantly, who who wrote this massive, massive book, this massive fiction, and then was faced with all kinds of problems in trying to make what we mustn't forget weren't just drawings, they were giant books. They were books on a scale that you can hardly even imagine. I mean, we show in the film one of the covers of the books, and it takes like three people to just carry the cover of the book. So, yeah, that's why he wanted to say, look, Henry Dargaard wasn't, as some people have said, he didn't have the mind of a serial killer. You know, David stressed that you know, in all of his work, yeah, it was about struggle in one way or another. But David couldn't accept that Henry Darger was, you know, this potentially evil person. <laughs> he didn't see it like that. And, of course, it's thanks to David and others, Nathan Lerner, other photographers like Michael Baruch, it's thanks to David that we've got photographs, documentation of what the room looked like. And without that documentation, without those photographs, we would struggle to know what Daga's world would really have looked like. Something that still remains very mysterious to me after all this time is, how is it possible that David Berglund and Nathan Lerner were artists themselves? did not suspect for one second that Henry was making art in his room. I mean, how can you not realize such a massive body of work is being made right next to you? Yeah, it, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? That, you know, you can live next door to, you know, someone that we now know is one of the great artists. I mean, it, it shouldn't be a competition, but sometimes it is, you know, one of the real amazing artists of the 20th century. And there's Nathan Lerner, who's not only a photographer, he's, you know, part of the Chicago Bauhaus, he's a teacher as well. And then you've got David Berglund, who's studying art and is really integrated, etc. But But, um, yeah, how did they not find out? It's almost like, you know, the discovery, why didn't it happen sooner? It is somewhat of a mystery. But then again, you know, I also question sometimes how much we know about our immediate neighbours. You know, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on in their lives, etc. And Dark is just an extreme example of of that. And of course, the way David describes his room, we see it in photographs. And we see it in the uh, Super 8 film, which was made by Michael Thompson, Colleen Fitzgibbon. We see what the room looked like. But from David's account and others, that's not what the room actually looked like. The room was so filled with materials that you had to go in almost like through a maze of stacks of materials 
So you couldn't actually get to see too much of what was going on. And if you think about it, those giant books with the amount of material uh, that was in them, uh, you know, those books were probably made and they could never be opened again. So if the room was that full, I guess, you know, anyone looking in would probably think, oh, you know, this is someone who's you know, hoarding things. And, and perhaps the idea of that person being an artist, it wasn't immediately apparent. How have you worked on the film and what have been the most challenging aspects in making it? Well, working on Henry Dargo is a, is a bit of a rabbit hole because the work is just so vast and there's so much to find out. You know, a lot of people have you know, started projects and uh, you know, photographers like uh, Michael Baruch and uh, filmmakers that I've mentioned, uh, Michael Thompson, Colleen Fitzgibbon, and there are others. I mean, there were various projects started. You know, People have started documenting uh, Henry Darger's life, and uh, I'm, you know, was incredibly grateful that that material existed. So I was, was able to draw on that. But it was a quite a long process, and there were, you know, quite a few people that one got to know over time. And you had to orientate yourself within this world. There's works in different places, in different countries, as we know, in in Switzerland and in France, and so on. So there's a lot to, to find out about it. So it did take quite a long time, and you know, kind of one thing led to another. That process of getting to know Henry Darger's work wasn't something you could do immediately. If you were going to make something that gave a sense of, you know, Darger's presence in the world, and you know, that research took a long time. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I made it the bulk of it, and most of the work was probably finished, you know, within around about 10 years. I mean, it's, it's a long time. It wasn't the only thing I was doing, but it did take a long time to, to work on it. But one of the most challenging things I say, and this is like kind of a filmmaking thing, is it was, it was difficult to work out the structure of the film because we were telling the story about a discovery of, uh, of, of, of you know, someone after their death. And then you were telling the story of his life and then progressing through the you know, uh, film, he dies. And then you're talking more about him. It was a difficult thing to work out structurally um, because we wanted to make sure that Daga had a voice and a presence in the film because that was lacking, I felt, in some of the work that was being done. You were losing sight of, of you know, Daga's daily life and, you know, what he collected and how he made things. And he didn't just write the realms of the unreal. He wrote other fictions as well, other projects, the weather reports and, and so on, predictions and threats, and, you know, a diary and autobiography. And so what was the most challenging thing probably in the film was to, you know, keep Daga his voice in the film. And that's what we tried to do by showing the places that he visited and how he collected and how he found things and give a sense of not just place, but some of the things in Chicago that fed into his work and all to keep his voice and presence in the film. And the interesting thing was that as we were putting together this, this material, um, you know, and we were getting a sense of Henry Darger's voice and having the sense of a normal voice, not like the voice of someone who was shouting or ranting as, you know, I've seen in, in, in some plays and, and, and other, other works about Darger. 
to have a, a sense of you know what Darga was like. And we found uh, someone to read Henry Darga's writing, whose voice Kyoko Lerner said, "Yeah, that would be a good voice." And then we started you know, making and putting together the film. And the interesting thing for us as filmmakers, as we were putting it together and you know hearing from Henry Darga, we almost forgot that. This was a recorded voice, and and we as filmmakers were sitting back and watching the film, and it just became intriguing to see what Henry Darga was saying next, and it was a little bit like, oh, Henry Darga keeps his presence in the film, and you start to become, as we did as filmmakers, interested and fascinated with what this person was like. So it deepens the mystery rather than you know solving a mystery. It, he remains an enigma. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. So, among other places, you went to film on location at the Lincoln Asylum, where Henry Darger was locked up as a child. That must have been a very intense experience. Can you tell me about it? Because it looks a bit horrific in the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lincoln is key location in the film, and it's a key location in Henry Darger's life. Um, it's strange because we know that Lincoln Asylum was not a place that uh, Henry Darger wanted to end up in, and he was affronted that he'd been sent there. The other thing to say about Lincoln is when you visited, or when I visited uh, Lincoln, I, I got permission from the state to be able to visit the school, which was then called Lincoln Developmental Center. And it had closed a few years, for four or five years, before I visited. And it is a truly fascinating place to visit. They've kept it uh, open, ticking over, so it's not gone into complete decline in case they're able to reopen it. So, you know, the big buildings survive and they're kept heated and the boilers are running and so on and so forth, so that it doesn't fall into total disrepair. But, you know, when you're visiting, you're able to visit the underground tunnels that link buildings that Darga spoke about. And, you know, these are filled with old debris and chairs and tables and old, you know, even toys. Um, you know, it's a very atmospheric place. And when I visited Lincoln, I found that people there were very keen, believe it or not, for me to tell this story. Um, two aspects, really. I mean, first of all, there were people who were telling me that Lincoln, which had a big role in the story of, of the town itself, because it was at one point the major employer in the town, it had just been closed quite recently. And there were people around who were talking to me in the town that I was getting to meet who wanted to tell me that Lincoln not only had, back in 1908, a history of mistreating children, they wanted to tell me about much more recent stories of 
people who'd lived in the school who had been mistreated. And so that made quite an impact on me because I got to meet, um, you know, former supervisors and uh, one child, well, I say one child, he was a child, but at the time he was a young man who'd, who'd, who'd been in the school. So I was hearing quite a few stories. Interestingly, you know, the, the, the one young man that I spoke about, he didn't want to talk about too much. He didn't want to talk about the, any things, positive or negative, that happened in the, in the film. I wonder if that's characteristic. You know, people don't necessarily want to recall you know, the things that happened. The other thing was in, it, very interesting, as I say, visiting the uh, home was I got to you know, drive around and people showed me different places and so on and so forth, the, you know, all the buildings and what have you. I got to know quite well and could film in them. And um, you know, one evening I was driving around with, with one of the security people and he was telling me that uh, he felt and others had felt that you know, because of what had gone on in Lincoln historically, he felt that Lincoln had a bad feel about it. And certainly he and he said some other people felt that it was haunted <laughs> and people didn't feel that it was a, a great place for children to be in at, at any time. And he told me about one building, for example, that he said, oh, you know, people don't like to go to that building because it's got a bad aura. So, well, next time I visited, I you know, went through the grounds with, uh, a, this time, a different security person. I said, oh, could you take me to such and such a building because oh, it would be interesting to go into that one. I've heard about it. And so we went into that building, which um, was the one that was supposed to have the bad reputation. And we went there and uh, the security guy, you know, was just shining his torchlight and I was filming and I, you know, didn't know what to expect. And <laughs> searching a, a, a kind of somewhat derelict building with a, a, a torchlight is, is always going to be quite suspenseful. But I let him lead the way and then he went right like through the building and he opened up one door and he opened the door, shone a light inside it and he was quite taken aback. He said, whoa, and he says, what is that? And he shines his torchlight and we're in a, you know, I don't know, a room maybe, uh, I don't know, three meters by three meters. And it looks like it's covered with uh, spatters of blood all over the ceiling all over the walls and the security guy says that's 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 not paint that's blood that's dried blood and he was really quite you know shocked by it and i mean i was shocked by i had a little bit of a sense that there might be something to find here but you know whether it was real blood or, or, or whether it was paint. This was a, a scary place, you know, like out of a thriller or a horror film. And uh, yeah, I mean, why would they have such a room there? I mean, it's no wonder people in Lincoln felt uh, something not great was going on for the children there. Savior, always following our generals and kings, shaping our lives by their brave examples, 
Happy, how happy the results that we bring. In the film, you say Henry Darger might be one of the greatest storytellers of the 20th century. Considering how he worked from newspapers and popular culture of his time, do you think we could say that Henry Darger documented his era? Yeah, I mean, did he document his era? We know that he fed a lot of his experiences into his work and he continued to create and collect and made lots of different objects like we have for example uh, you know scrapbooks of uh, all the fires in Chicago where he keeps a record of of who died he collects and kind of is bearing witness to children suffering in Chicago he keeps those uh, clippings from newspapers about children who'd suffered and in a way he does document everything that was going on around him in his city and it does seem to be that you know he gathered that information mostly from newspapers that as we know he he did gather in old newspapers from the trash cans etc and all these things were filtered and he made these giant scrapbooks he made enormous book of clippings from comics and uh, newspapers and if we look carefully at his work we can find uh, evidence that uh, he knew the city well that he observed things that were going on in the city and you know chicago for example was at that point the meat packing center for the us you know animals <laughs> for good part of the us were slaughtered and processed there and It doesn't take far to dig into his uh, writings to see evidence that he's talking at times about what was going on in Chicago's slaughterhouses. He talks about, you know, the slaughterhouses and how that there were, you know, armies of children working in his fictional slaughterhouses and so on. So it reflects the city and his work and You know, everything that he gathers and puts into his collage drawings, the collage elements, the uh, figures that he traced or made, uh, you know, photos of um, by taking clipping to, to the drugstore and getting them blown up, having negatives made. All these things come from the city. So even though he creates these uh, beautiful, often visions of a, a kind of, you know, idealized countryside, lots of the elements have actually come literally from the city. Clouds have been borrowed from photographs of fires in the city, and they've been turned into pastoral clouds. So even in the fantastic Uh, landscapes that he draws, he's still, in a way, something of a city artist. He's getting all his materials from his travels through the city. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, you can say that, oh, he was an amazing you know, artist in terms of you know, showing the natural world, but he observed the natural world in the city, and he took things from the city to make those works.
Henry Dagger's visual work is exhibited in different museums around the world, and to do so, it had to be broken up. But you mentioned how these paintings and collages were in fact giant books. So would you say his artwork is like a comic book? It's one way of uh, seeing Henry Darger's work is like the most monumental comic <laughs> that's ever been created. Because of course, in many of the collage drawings, there are speech bubbles and the characters within the drawings are talking about what's going on in the drawings, which is always interesting to see. You know, it gives a sense of Darger's Uh, humor and um, his awareness that he was making art. The characters reflect on the situations that they're in, which is quite uh, interesting. They're commenting on, oh, you know, the strangeness of the world that they're in. I also do think, though, that you know you can get a lot out of a single work because, you, as we know, these are big pieces they're giant aren't they as you know and they're double-sided so you get a sense of what the works are about sometimes just from even an individual work so you can certainly appreciate them in in that way too but yeah of course it would be astounding to see the works in their full sequence but if they'd have been left I mean, there are arguments to say, you know, the book shouldn't have been, uh, you know, taken apart. But if they hadn't been taken apart, if they'd been just, let's say, kept intact and put into an archive somewhere, then nobody would have ever found out about Henry Darger's work. If they'd have stayed intact as books, they couldn't have been opened without damaging. It's kind of like, well, you know, Kafka's work he wanted to have destroyed. Well, We know that didn't happen. Well, you've got to say, oh, thank God that that work wasn't destroyed, that we didn't conform to Henry Darger's wishes. On the other hand, you know, Henry Darger, you know, whether he wanted the work to be saved or shown or whatever, we'll never know 100%. There's, there's different accounts of what he wanted for his work. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's... The fact that Darga's work now is, is, is seen throughout the world and it becomes increasingly recognized. Its reputation only just grows and grows by the year. I mean, Henry Darga didn't benefit in uh, a material sense, but um, uh, yeah, it's far better that it's uh, shown and we get to see it. And, you know, his ideas really, really do live on. And they can inspire other artists as well. And I think this is what Mike Lindsay and I have tried to do with, with the Outsider album. We took from his art and made a new piece of art with it, which is what you have done as well. And I have a feeling that many other artists in the future will get inspired by Henry Dagger's legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, of course, the sense of, you know, this person was creating everything in a state of solitude and maybe he... he, he might have wished for it to stay that way and, and, and just been a project for him. Um, sometimes it does feel like you're intruding into someone's private world. And yeah, of course, you, you question, I'm, I'm sure you probably did, you thought, well, okay, we have these lyrics. Is it a, a viable and valuable thing to take that as a starting point and create music from it? Well, it, it's inspired you. And I'd say, you know, in terms of one important thing is finding the right tone. And you sought to find the right 
right tone. You've not created, um, you know, music that's going to be used in, I don't know, advertising, for example, hasn't got that feel to it. It's the tone is very, very important and the spirit in which it's been done. So what you've not done Definitely, and we hope that we've not done, we've not compounded all the negative things that happened to Henry Darga in his life, where he was viewed as just the, you know, crazy, feeble-minded, you know, person, Um, and he was viewed as just the lowly janitor. That's what we try to do. We try to do, as I think you've done as well, you know, we try to do something that enhances or gives people another perspective on the work, rather than in you know what's happened partly in the real world, where Henry Darger's work has come into the real world, it's not been immediately understood, or it's been oversimplified, or seen in a rather facile manner, and what ends up in print is like in the very first um, major article uh, in the UK, which was in the Guardian, which was entitled "Portraits of a Serial Killer?" Question mark. And there was also an article around about the same time in Forbes magazine, you know, business magazine, which is on the one hand saying, oh, look at this amazing discovery. You know, the, look how valuable the works are and uh, what an c- incredible enterprise. But um, Henry Darger's photograph was captioned, the adulpated janitor, the crazy janitor. So he was being in the real world where his work is is shown and evaluated, sometimes he's still criticised. And one of the things that people kind of, what doesn't sit very easily sometimes with people, that Darga didn't promote his work while he was alive. So he didn't seem like kind of the bohemian artist who had, who knew everybody who was anybody sort of thing. He didn't move in those circles. And it's wrong that he still gets punished for that. Well, now he's accepted and loved and admired by kind of, incredible range of artists, you know, whether it's um, some writers, filmmakers, musicians, or whatever, who really think, oh, this is an amazing life. And it's just endlessly fascinating. Yes, it's a way of paying respect to the work he has done. Yeah. And different people take very, very different things from Daga's work. And they see different things in Daga's work and can be inspired by it. And a lot of it is to do with the uh, the imagery of the Vivian Girls. And of course, there's the whole theme of, you know, sexuality, etc., which everyone will have a different take on. And different people see different things in the work and get inspired in different ways. I I spoke, for example, to the late poet John Ashbery. What he loved about Henry Darger's work was something that didn't really, you know, essentially appeal to me particularly. He loved the whole Shirley Temple aspect of it. What would you describe it as? The very feminine iconography, which he said he loved during his childhood. And that's why he wrote, uh, you know, poems based on Henry Darger's works. Another example of someone being inspired by that work. But um, you know, different people see different things in it. There's um, the writer Olivia Lang. She wrote it from the perspective of solitude in the first instance, in the Lonely City. So, you know, different people see different different things in the work. And, you know, we'll continue to find and, and discover different things as we've seen over these past years. Yes, I'm sure there is still a lot more to discover about Henry.
Thank you so much, Mark. It was really wonderful to talk with you and thank you for making such an important documentary about Henry Dogger. Yeah, I'm pleased you enjoyed it. It's great. And um, yeah, hope to uh, talk to you some more about it at some point in the future in Paris. Outsider is a seven-part podcast series. It was created by Philippe Cohen-Solal, written by Clémentine Spiller, and produced by César de Pouilly for Yabasta Records. If you enjoyed the music in this episode, you can listen to the Outsider album by Philippe Cohen-Solal and Mike Lindsay. The album is inspired by the works of Henry Dogger. It's out now and streaming on all platforms. Onwards in the fight, onwards in the fight How beautiful to march in the steps of the Savior Let him pass of light How beautiful to march in the steps of the Savior Onwards in the fight, onwards in the fight How beautiful to march in the steps of the Savior, let him pass away.